Collaboration is the essential life force of the theatre. Disparate roles work together to produce an essence that is ephemeral. But if successful, its memory can last a lifetime. The adventure often begins with the playwright, who drafts a blueprint of words and character and action that is then nurtured by a team and its watchful wordsmith parent. Tommy Murphy is such a parent. He is one of our eminent storytellers and collaboration comes easy. It is a process he relishes. Perhaps it's being one of eight children that has fostered this skill. Tommy Murphy is an award-winning playwright with recent productions in New York, San Francisco, Indiana, Los Angeles, Auckland, Melbourne and Sydney. He is the only playwright to win the New South Wales Premier's Award, a prestigious national writing prize, in successive years. Tommy is a graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Art as a director and a former writer-in-residence at Griffin Theatre Company. His plays include an adaptation of Marlowe's Massacre at Paris, Holding the Man, Strangers in Between, Troy's House, Gwen in Purgatory, Saturn's Return, Mark Colvin's Kidney and Precipice. His next play is Packer and Sons, a story that puts four generations of the Packer family on stage, men who loomed large over Sydney for nearly 100 years. It receives its debut season at the Belvoir Street Theatre from November 16th through to December 22nd. Tommy sat down with me to discuss playwriting, process and the Packers. I've had this wonderful thing, I've had a residency uh, at first the STC and then at Currency Press this whole time. So that's been amazing that I've finished that now and I'm now in my little home study, which is great. I imagine as a, as a playwright, you uh, you spend a fair bit of time alone. Are we recording? Yeah. What? Yeah. That's we right. started. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. Why? Well, otherwise, people go, hi, uh, welcome, uh, thank you. What bit there did we, we start with? Was it the bit where I almost said something No, <laughs> no, 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 no. God, no, no. I can, I can cut all that sort of out. But that's, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, this is a conversation. Easy, it's not... Uh, I'm not Jan Event or Richard Carlton. I know, but I've got to put on my professional persona now. You have a... You, you, you look how different it is. Do you have a professional persona no. and a Tommy persona? No, not at all. No, they're just one and the same thing. <laughs> so yes. there you so go. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, I could have been just inquiring anyway, which I will continue. Uh, playwriting, is it a, a, a solitary... It's a solitary experience. Do you get lonely when you're working? Um, I really enjoy the interaction with others. I think you choose to be a playwright, unlike a novelist or some other kind of writer, because you enjoy people. You enjoy this, you know, community project. And the making of it is so collaborative that I think you're drawn to this sort of work because you like being with people. So, and I, in terms of my workspace recently, I've had this residency at Currency Press, and before that I had the residency at the Sydney Theatre Company, and having worked from home for over a decade, I realised how valuable it was to be able to interact. Even just those incidental conversations in the kitchenette are so helpful. So they inform the work and, and where you might take it? Yes, even if the conversations are just around work. I think you also, you, you sort of feed off other people's productivity. So I love the discipline of a, of a space that is dedicated to working. So I've just finished this residency at Currency and I've got a study at home now. And I painted it a completely different colour to the rest of the house because I think stepping over that little threshold at the door has to be my commute to work. And, you know, at one point, Dane and I lived in this tiny one-bedroom apartment and my commute from work, <laughs> the, the, 
the bed sort of jutted up against the desk and we had to take the cupboard doors off because they couldn't fit with the bed and the desk. My commute to work then was sort of getting up from bed and turning and being at the desk, you know, it was like... So, so you could sleep in and, and get sleep to work on time. That's yeah. right, get to work on time. But it's funny those things, like you do sometimes as a writer play these games with how you frame it to um, make sure it's disciplined and you have these little rituals to switch you on to the work. You know? I think some of that is about making sure you feel legitimate in your job, you know? Like I, I, I hate working in a library. Now. I love researching in a library, but I hate sitting down and trying to work in a library or a cafe or something because it doesn't have a professional framework and I feel like I'm pretending, you know. Yes, you've got a leg in both the, the, the social or what you perceive to be the social yeah. as well as the work. Uh, what colour is your study at home? It's this sort of, um, I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what it's called. It's like this, funny just, it's this grey colour. It's very, it tries to be very disciplined, very utilitarian. Right. It's all grey. The right. ceiling, the floor. <laughs> I, I would like imagine cell, that it would. It? Yeah, I imagine that it would have a bit of colour. Just well, to sort of. I'm um, about to hang on my theatre posters. That gives it the colour. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good. 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 <laughs> oh, that's good. So, um, would you say that a lot of your work has has been commissioned work that you've jumped on board with various other creators at the same time? Have you ever sat down and actually written a play without that involvement? Oh, my first play. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I've been lucky in that most of the plays that I have written have been with the connection to a theatre company many of them have been incited by a theatre company you know there's been some proviso some kind of bouncing off some trigger or a commission Um, but there have been other things where I've come up with an idea and then taken it either to TV producers or theatre producers um, and then that's when the collaboration begins. Uh, there are many ways in which we choose to come out to our parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> through letters and through confronting them face on, head on, all that sort of thing. But I, I believe you came out to your parents in your first play. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah, me about yeah, that. Yeah. Particularly my mum. See, I'd r- written this play about a teenage kid coming out in a small town and he was very much like me. And uh, I had this opportunity to do a reading of the play at, um, in Queenbian, where I grew up. And uh, I didn't have a computer then. This was 1996. I was 16. And uh, I had handwritten the script. And it was too messy for the actors to follow. And my mum, uh, who had been a secretary, um, had this big old sort of electric um, typewriter. And so she offered to type it out for me. So if you can imagine that scene, I'm there dictating to mum a scene about a teenage boy coming out to his mother as she's there typing it. And she's sort of saying things about the mother's response and wondering if in that hypothetical situation, if her, if her, if she, if her response would be as, as good as that mother's, you know. And um, I then uh, staged, we, we did a, this staged reading in 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 Queanbeyan and if the play hadn't uh, made the announcement to her and to the you know people that I got along to the reading um, at that time she sort of um, you know worked out that I had a boyfriend and um, yeah so but the play was the occasion the, the way to do it that sounds so precocious now I mean it sounds sort of um, yeah I mean uh, anyway look it worked 
Do, do you find that in your other place since then, there has always been an element of the autobiographical? There's, there's an experience that you've had that you feed into the storyline somehow or characters? I think you do need to find yourself in every work, but I don't think it's necessarily just that it's autobiographical. I think the thing that I hang on to from that experience is that plays are best when they feel exposing. I think when there's something that is a little bit dangerous or that you feel that you might be judged for it. And also that I think the lesson of that time is that that, um, theatre is a very good place to discuss things that you haven't found another forum to speak them in. And that's definitely an example from that very first play, definitely. And strangers in between, I know that the, the central character, we won't go into the details, but the central character uh, <laughs> suffered from an affliction which uh, uh, may have popped up or may not have popped up. The subtext is that you've asked, you're have you asking me if I have had anal warts. I can, <laughs> I can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. The character does have anal warts in that play. I remember a conversation at Griffin with the dramaturg there, and he was saying, if you're going to include that, this is going to be a play about anal warts now. That's what it's going to be. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think it's as limiting as that. Um, but, I mean, there's all sorts of things in that play that felt... You know, like whether it was like the first time you get an STI or like the first, um, or particularly in that play, it's about the feelings of um, uh, a, a kind of country kid coming to the city and being um, kind of terrified. And people sort of laugh at Shane that he's sort of saying all these things that sound ridiculous. But I tell you, that was autobiographical. All, everything that Shane says are things that. I once believed as a, as a country kid coming to Sydney about the dangers that I, I, I perceived in the city. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I only mentioned that because in my research, I did, did have read that you've talked about that before. So Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, no, yeah. Mate, there's no secrets with me. You'll find that <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? You talk about Queenbeer. Queenbeer, so, yeah. That's oh, where I grew up. Okay. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So was, was yeah. that a, a fun sort of growing up in the country? Yeah, look, it was good. I mean, there were times when I think I felt I envied people in the city because I, sometimes I felt a bit bored or it was hard to sort of get to your mates, you know, like it was sort of the distances were, were longer or whatever. And um, But it was very good for me, particularly as a teenager, interested in, in, in theatre because I, I or developed this interest in theatre because of Queanbeyan and um, I had this uh, uh, opportunity there via this mentor that I met um, named Gunnar Isaacson who um, is no longer with us, but he was... Um, someone who had retired to Queanbeyan and we just sort of I didn't know this at the time but we really found each other at the right time he was 76 um and uh, had been a uh, filmmaker he'd been like a, a particularly documentary filmmaker originally from Sweden and he'd ended up in Queanbeyan and we just crossed paths and he he I realized later like when when Gunnar died that he'd actually been going through a fairly troubled time in his life and um we just became good mates and he had written a play and I, that's how I met him. I volunteered via an ad in the Queanbeyan Age to, be, um, to help with that production. And I was just an assistant to the stage manager. And um, I just wanted to emulate Gunnar, who had written this play. And it felt like for the first time, it wasn't like at school where plays were from another time. They were from overseas. This person in my community had written a play and it felt possible. And so I just sort of tried to copy that. And then he helped me get um, a uh, helped me go to observe the National Playwrights Conference, which was happening not far away in Canberra. Uh, so I attended that, and then um, that play uh, won a competition. It just sort of opened um, these 
doors to me and there was just a lot of encouragement um, to, to get involved. So what were you doing at, at school then? Was, was Gunner your first experience to playmaking? Were you using that as a form at school to complete assignments or were you doing Not much. I mean, or, most, or? Of, most of the stuff at school was, you know, studying Shakespeare and stuff and studying it as as books. We did do the Shakespeare Festival, which was really, was different, but, but um, nothing, nothing was quite like that. I mean, I did, you know, school shows and stuff, which were, which were great. I still have friends from that time, but the sort of creative undertaking in a community theatre in Queanbeyan, I don't know, that, that was more formative for me. I think also because I was sort of being treated as an adult a little bit as well. Um, I remember this key moment like of, I remember there, cause I didn't feel, I wasn't that useful. I was just a kid hanging around, but I wanted to be useful. And, um, I remember they needed like just a power board, like for the elect- some lighting or something. And I, my house wasn't very far away. And I remember finally feeling useful and then sort of running home to find, to borrow a power board to bring to the production. And I just remember the feeling of that, like of being involved and helpful. And I, that, that, that I think sort of ignited something for me. And then in that downtime, even backstage, I literally started trying to, to scribble ideas for my own play. You grew up with, uh, was it eight siblings? Seven siblings, yeah, I'm one of Seven, eight kids. One of eight yeah. kids. So were you, were, do you think you might have been struggling for some attention also? <laughs> <laughs> the thing that it did was I had older brothers and sisters in the arts. So um, it was very normal to aspire to, that was a very normal kind of thing to aspire to as a, as a career or for study um, and really encouraged by my parents. Were the, your parents happy about a career in the arts? Completely, yeah, yeah. completely encouraging for because they love the arts but also that I think, you know, they, the great thing about my parents, probably because I was, you know, number seven of eight, by the time they got to me, they were like, you know, nothing could shock them, nothing worried them. And, and I had older brothers and sisters who, who were already in the arts. So. Playwriting, I, I guess, maybe gave you a sense of control as well. Um, you're, you're, on, you're on the ground floor from, with theatre making? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I guess some of it's about control, but that's not what turns me on about it. You know, like I think that it's sometimes in the process, if you think of yourself as a kind of God creating a world and being in control, it's not that helpful. I think the parts that I love about playwriting, it's when you surrender to it and you feel as though the story is in charge. You feel as though that you try to get to this point where in the draft where it's got its own engine and, and, and you're following its impulses as much as... Your, your own and um, yeah I crave those moments what were the narratives that you were really enjoying uh, growing up uh, as far as novels television film oh that's a good question I've got to go back to were you regularly up. at the cinema or was there a favourite yeah, yeah 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 see I used to go to the cinema with, with my dad but also with Gunnar because he had this uh, pioneers pass and so he could get free admission for himself and a mate to go and see any film. So we went and saw a lot of films over at Electric Shadows. Um, and, you know, a lot of international films. And um, it, was, it was a wonderful thing. You know, I sometimes think that that probably couldn't happen now, that this random 76-year-old could befriend yeah, yeah. a teenage boy yeah. and that his family would be cool and not ask any questions, you know, that, that he was going off and seeing shows together. There was no... There was nothing untoward happening there, um, you know. He uh, wasn't interested. You know, there was nothing untoward, and and I couldn't completely understand necessarily why now we would be suspicious about that. Um, and 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 that's 
right and appropriate now but the cost of it is this wonderful kind of mentor thing that we we had you know it was just a it was a really beautiful friendship we should all have great champions like that who take mm. an interest in uh yeah you know uh, careers or prospective careers and interests and yeah and foster and nurture that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. oh very lucky very lucky yeah any other teachers that sort of were in your orbit that had an impact look i found the arts department at my high school particularly a kind of retreat there's a woman named Kate Shelton who I'm still mates with now and, a, and an art teacher called um an art teacher called Steve Lowe um who was um a, a uh, on exchange from England that I go and visit most times if I'm in the UK um and it was a very sort of rugby playing school and the in the arts department I had a great time at school but the arts department was a sort of retreat and um uh as well as the sort of um learning about the arts it was just a sort of i don't know i guess it was smaller and tucked under the school you were treated like an adult there and there's just a lot of creative play and i loved it i grew up in a country town as well and um, i couldn't wait to get out was mm-hmm. that the same for you it was always i don't ha- didn't have to think about it my older brothers and sisters had moved to sydney i don't remember ever making a decision that i would go to sydney it was just inevitable and i don't remember when but certain certainly by the age of 10 when or earlier, when my older brother Marty was at Suds, I knew that I would go to Sydney University because of Suds. I, at some point, settled on an arts degree, but I always knew that it was just de- I was destined to go go to Suds, uh, and Suds became this fantastic playground for me. Sydney University Dramatic Society. That's it. Yeah. Yes. So, um, w- did that take up a lot of your time at uni? Completely. W- were you a good student? Or I don't think I was a good student on paper. Uh, I think I made the very m- most out of my university time. I absolutely did. I, I absolutely embraced campus life. My closest friends now remain those people from, from SUDS. There's something about the relationships that you make there where you're all doing this, you're all vulnerable together. And uh, and you, the, the intimacy of those friendships is just sort of instantaneous and, and, and long-lasting. And um, I owe a lot to SUDS in terms of, particularly because they're, we were all learning together away from the academics um, and you were trying all of these different roles. You know, one week you were the lighting designer or then you, were, I was also involved in the administration of SUDS as well. And so then you were a producer for a minute and doing the poster design. You were, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but, but learning everybody else's language was so important and learning it by doing it i learned why i'm not a lighting designer and why i'm dependent (laughs) on one you know and and that's really valuable so did the university provide staff that manage suds or was it all students we're in a cellar uh we're underground we're in a cellar and that was great so you're learning from students two or three years above you i guess yeah there's a very high turnover and i I, I pride myself on my time there of 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 making it a really open door um and uh you know i I can make that claim but i believe it was true that i was president of suds and we initiated these schemes during um o week where we just tried to get as many people in the door like just get them immediately involved and we worked out these schemes of doing like a 24-hour play project or um uh, plays that were written overnight and then staged the next day and then uh, another one this 24-hour play project was we tried to improvise a play non-stop for for 24 hours it took us three years to make to get that because we kept on you know falling asleep at the wheel but we eventually did it and things like that where 
because I loved the activity of Suds, you know, because we were putting on a new production at least every fortnight of the academic calendar. And um, people would propose. It was unlike other university theatres where there was sort of students sitting on some board being in judgment of others. It was democratic and you would vote. And even if someone didn't get their proposal up, there was enough opportunity that if they kept on coming back, they'd eventually get to put their show on. And for good or bad, but we were all learning together. And some of what we made was terrible and some of it was great. You know. Who was the audience? Was that student audience? Or mostly students, yeah. yeah mostly right. students. And a pretty pretty loyal audience, yeah. Right. And they paid like $2 a ticket and yeah. Had a good night. Had a good night. So uh, you, the Suds experience, I guess, is germinating in your head what you want to do. Mm. You go to NIDA next, but you study directing. There wasn't a playwrights course Oh, then. at the time? No. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I had done quite a bit of directing at Suds. Uh, and I'd had a success directing a play that I'd written called Troy's House. And so I guess I qualified as a director, but it was a bit of a, I was a, I was a playwright in disguise. But if I were to design, you know, a, a curriculum for a playwright's course, it would look very much like that director's course. Um, probably for those same reasons uh, that I was talking about at Suds, where you learn everybody else's language. Um, at NIDA, you're learning everyone else's language, but also their professional discipline. And um, you, you, you know, got to do classes in acting and, and playwriting. There's a lot of dramaturgy as part of the directing course. And... And the best thing about NIDA is you may, you're allowed to make that extraordinary, the facilities of that place and the, the resources of that place and the industriousness of that place, you are allowed to make it dominate your entire life for that time that you were there. And other than my relationship, uh, nothing mattered more, you know, and uh, that was great. What was the project you applied with? Uh, I applied with a Twelfth Night, um, and you had to do a design presentation um, to Peter Cook, uh, who's head of design and deputy head of the school. And I still count Peter as one of the greatest teachers that I've ever encountered. You know, and we and the, and the, and the design. I think every time I sit down in a theatre, I still I, I have a bit of Peter in my ear. You know, some of the some of the things that he spoke about in terms of the metaphor, metaphoric landscape of a set design and um yeah I, I still think about peter's teaching quite a bit actually the text is the thing isn't it it's a, it's a blueprint for production that's right so, so when you're writing do you have all of those considerations in mind the the opportunities for the lighting design and the costume design and the set designer never never yeah never i suppose you can't afford to because it's going to fuck up the journey that you want to go i've, on I've just learned from experience yeah. that any time i am imagining the stage reality instead of the reality according to the character uh, and what they're experiencing that's when the writing becomes phony and and you can and you can slip into it sometimes you know you've got trying to problem solve and you think what will this look like on the stage and you know you're faking it and it's you just have to be immersed in the logic and the the desires of the character not in that someone else's job to, yeah, to later on it. to interpret yeah, that. Yeah, and I think that's what I mean by being at Suds and NIDA. That's what it teaches you, just to relax and provide and trust in your um, you know, collaborators not to try to do something for them. I think the worst stage direction would describe 
the pictures of the stage or give some instruction to a lighting designer or a set designer. That'd be the worst stage direction. Well, you think of those uh, copies of George Bernard Shaw's plays. Yeah, I mean, it's a different tradition. He he writes... Yeah, oh, yeah, he's writing some time ago, but yeah. his whole essays about essays, yeah, the, yeah. the scene yeah. between each sort of yeah. And sometimes I think those stage directions are documenting an original production and for different things. But nowadays, I just yeah, I would never ever do that. Yeah, and imaginatively, it would be the wrong way in. Yeah. So how are plays made? I mean, that's a very open ended. No, question. it's a good question. Um, it's a good question, and um, it's one that we're really grappling with at the moment. I think because some of the the, the resources that we have to help get plays made um, have been diminished. So we should be asking that question. It's how do they get made? They, they get made uh, when theatre company... I think one thing is is that theatre companies need to be able to trigger plays. I think that's very important, that um, they're not just made by somebody sitting in their, you know, grey study bashing something out that might sit in the bottom drawer until it finds its opportunity. Plays are incited by theatre companies. They have to know what where the appetite is and what they need to um, fill their program and they need to press buttons and trigger them. I think they're the bit, that's the best way a theatre company can help because sort of randomly giving opportunities that have no pathway to production doesn't help. That just makes for frustrated playwrights. Yeah. So that that's how I'd answer it from the perspective of the companies. And then from the 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 playwrights themselves, how do they get made? Uh, sometimes by completely random impulses, um, judging when it's a, when it's the right time to share that seed of an idea with a collaborator um, uh, that can help in its um, germination. Um, but I, I don't think I think it always involves um, a team effort. The, the, what to judge from, uh, from the point of view of a playwright is, is is when to expose it to those opportunities for development. Yeah. What I find sad, and I know it depends on the lapse of the gods, is the longevity of a play. A, 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 many plays just exist in that production, that season that yeah. they've written, and they don't have a life. I mean, Gwen in Purgatory, fabulous yeah. play. Will we ever see another production of Gwen in Purgatory? I don't know. It had a play. It had. There is some interest. There's look. It's going to have a. It's going to have a community production in Queensland soon, uh, and it had a production in New Zealand. But um, the reality here is that, yeah, if you don't find another, and if you don't find another production in a major city quickly, uh, yeah, the opportunity sort of goes I, I, I think my next play that I'm doing Packer and Sons at Belvoir will only have that one outing I think it's you know um, it might be viewed as a Sydney story I think it's a, it's a national story but I think it might be perceived as being a particularly Sydney story and this will be its outing and I guess I just have to accept that and, and, and know that that's what I'm writing for this this event this year but from our heritage you, you hear of um, amazing productions of the legend of King O'Malley and mm. all these great Australian plays which yeah. had that one production and we never really see them again. I think, you know, it's to the detriment of the writing because any play that I've had that has had a second opportunity, the play has got better. Yeah. And like Holding the Man, I'm, you know, I've been lucky with that one. It, it has productions very regularly um, and I, I went to a production of it in Chicago last year and uh, I immediately did a few little rewrites afterwards even though it's more than a decade after it was first on because 
why not? Yeah. Like, I was going to say to you, continue to tinker, because Dianic Enright used to do that. Yeah. Every time yeah. we return to a, another production, right. we'd try and craft it to make it better. Why or, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't you? It's yeah. still your baby. You're still... Yeah, but you've got... Have ownership of it. Uh, that said, there have been times when I've known to stop as well. Like with, with Strangers in Between, it had a production in London and Melbourne and Sydney last year. And I, I was invited to look have, have a bit of a tinker with it. And I realised that I was no longer that voice, particularly of the character Shane. It was documenting a really truthful naivety that I couldn't fake anymore. And anything I tried to fix was sort of knowing. And I realised that I'm actually not the same person who wrote it. So I can't tinker with that one anymore. Yeah. I know you enjoy collaboration. Love it. A lot of creatives don't. They find it difficult. What do you love about collaboration? Well, I think it's necessary. Yeah. I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, what do I love about it? I love those moments when the I, you think it's a good idea and you can't actually trace who came up with it. It actually came out of the collaboration. Yeah. This, this happens in TV writers' rooms when it's working well, that there was something that bounced across the brains and it took all of us to get there, but it would never have got there without that person saying this and that and then this little reshaping and the room made the idea. And I love those feelings. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've experienced television writing a bit. You've written episodes. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've just been doing that this morning. It, that's something you do by yourself, I imagine. I, I no, no, you're no. in a room quite a bit. It's pretty collaborative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've often wondered how that worked because you hear those big writers' room in the States. Yeah, that's you know, what we do it here 12, too. 14 yeah. writers. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're very collaborative here because you know, we also divvy up the ep- episodes as well. So there's a head writer, usually the person who's created it, and uh, writers come together uh, in a writers' room to brainstorm. And then there's another part of it that is the plotting, and that's done in a group. And then even with the drafts, uh, there's uh, back and forth meetings um, and. Uh, um, and uh, lots of notes, and uh, it, it's a pretty collaborative undertaking. Yeah. Do you ever get writer's block? How, um, how do you clear that fogginess when it... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, not recently. Um, I think with every project, you will hit a wall and you need to step away from it. Um, but in terms of generating ideas... That's easy enough. It's 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 whether you're generating ideas that have the substance to to make something great, you know. Like, um, but um, look, not recently. I don't I don't really know what that's like. But oh. I guess there's times too when you have those days where it just pours out of you. And you're, oh, definitely. You're writing oh, definitely. many many and, hours. Uh, and and the more you do it, you understand that process. You understand that, and and I, I, I and if it's not working, you do need to pull yourself away from the computer. But um, it's fine also just to get it on there. Like it's so much easier to write when you've got something to reshape. So you just pile it all on and even if it's terrible, just get something written and then, you know, bit by bit, it sort of reshapes. I, I've learned that because you can get really mean on, you can be really mean to yourself and, and if you judge the, the quality of the work or the, the productivity for one day, you can be really, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't feel right so you've got to sort of judge your productivity over a week and then and then you know if you know you kind of got somewhere um yeah you've given um birth to quite a few people on the page right (laughs) your characters (laughs) um 
and you are creating characters who sometimes might be foreign to you. I'm thinking, um, or or familiar. Yeah. Uh, Peter in in Strangers in Between and, and yeah. Gwen and Gwen in Purgatory. You know, older characters, female yes. characters. Yeah. How do you create their vernacular and idiosyncrasies? And Based on real voices around me, right? Very much so, and in tribute to those real people. Um, uh, Gwen is is based on my grandmother, and um, and uh, Peter is based on a friend of mine, Hugh. Um, so just you know, eventually, they pretty quickly they become a character distinct from that real inspiration. But you find something truthful by you know writing by ear. When you do give your characters away to actors, is that is that hard? Is it like a parent sort of entrusting? No, I mean, again, it would be better if you knew you were going to have many productions. I think that would make it, and, and the times that I have, I've loved seeing the different choices that are being made. But um, they're just another collaborator that you, you, you trust and, and hand it over to. There's no, um, um, that's, that's the job. Yeah. yeah. Um, the good. Th- what the thing I do love is that the opportunity with new works to work with the actors. I've just been doing that recently with John Howard at Belvoir for Packer and Sons, and and actors look at the work in a very different way to the playwright. You know, we have to have this bird's eye view of it, and and they're in charge of one character, so they're able to, you know, follow that character's logic and 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 the. The actions and the way that those actions um, build, and and the, the, this one leads to that one. They, they follow that progress through the story in a way that the playwright m- might not be able to. Um, they're so valuable. Uh, I guess with Packer and Sons, you're writing characters that exist in real life. Yeah, um, yeah. they're not fictional like Gwen or, or Peter. Yeah. How is that different? I mean, is there a, a responsibility that you feel to... Absolutely. Yeah, to, to honour those characters Absolutely, who have existed. Yeah. Can you be take some theatrical licence with it as well? Yes, or, yeah? yes. Two responsibilities. Obviously, that ethical responsibility to the real person and the responsibility to the audience to make sure that the play is a exciting, compelling story. And, and that takes... And for that, you need to... Um, ask the needs of the play and the needs of a good story and follow follow where the drama is and and follow where the emotion is um so necessarily you are taking liberties but with respect and an awareness that you you are dealing with real real lives yeah i don't imagine you um have met the packers uh some members of the family some you have yeah Um, certainly mark colvin i think you, you you met him as well Yes, I did. I spent yeah. a lot of time with Mark. Got to know him very, very well. I mean, I think we became really solid mates um, through the course of, of developing Mark Colvin's kidney. He um, and uh, you know, he 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 died just not long after the. I think it was just not long after the show closed. Is that, I'm trying to remember. It's been such a a weird sort of stretch of years in that time. Um, but uh, I I got to say goodbye to Mark just before he died, and um, I, I told him that uh, I would be. Know, trying to emulate him in life when I thought of when I came to any difficult decisions, you know, times when um, decisions of integrity. And I remember saying this to him that I that I would be thinking of him because he was a person of such great integrity, yeah. both in his profession and and and, and personally. Um, so he's a yeah, he remains a kind of um, a yardstick on that. Yeah. And holding the man, of course, too. You know, yeah. Well, I never met I never met Tim and John, but I felt like I knew them, yeah. and I met so many people 
in their in their orbit. So many. Um, they they had an extraordinary impact on so many people, and um, and yeah, still are kind of meet people that at any time the show has been on, even overseas, um, there'll be people who um, get in touch. Yeah, which is extreme, it's a real privilege actually to feel like I know those guys um, without ever having to have, without you know sadly never getting to meet them in person though. What sort of drafting process do you go through? Is there somebody who reads all of your plays or does it go, go straight to the director you're working with? Uh, it depends what stage it's at. I have a few trusted friends that I will always um, ask to read it. Uh, one, one tomorrow I'm going, just before rehearsals begin for Packer and Sons, I'm going to uh, Richard Cottrell's house, Richard, Richard Cottrell, yep. theatre director. Um, he's such a brain. Um, I, I, uh, over the years, he would give me notes uh, after opening night. So I decided better to get him to give <laughs> me notes before rehearsals, so <laughs> when I can still change things. you know. But obviously notes so, that you agreed with. Yes, or, yeah, yeah, just too late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really yeah. agreed with them. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so you know, uh, I, I always um, avail and expose myself to those those uh, critical voices, and also just oh, some friend. Usually, I find a friend who is not in theatre as well, or just sort of someone who I really trust, and either get them to read the draft, or even just do a step in the drafting where I imagine their response. It's much easier than to imagine this unknown big audience bank you can just think of that one person that treasured friend you know like my best friend emma i'll think how how will emma react how will she laugh you know what what's going to amuse her what's going to draw her in that's a much easier task than some unknown big audience what's a dramaturgist to the uninitiated well dramaturg like a like the script editor in uh in filmmaking um it's the it's the person in the production that will assist uh, to check the storytelling I guess they might provide support and sort of the, the the research sometimes and things like that but they're your go-to person um, who is uh, trying to provoke you uh, trying to make you consider things more deeply and to um, provide you know, clues to sort of as you try to navigate what this play should be you've said that writing a play rummaging for the research to inform it regularly involves a glimpse into another person's agony it mm. requires sensitivity did i say that you did say that you impressed by that well it's it's <laughs> I, I i like that um because it sort of reminds me of what i'm doing in packer and sons a bit yeah like i feel like i've had to glimpse into um or imagine james packer's agony at times um, in terms of facing public scrutiny uh, and uh, and in being um, Kerry's son, frankly. Yeah, yeah, to live up to uh, the, you know, with that, that shadow cast over him, yeah. Um, and those family members all living in Sydney also, do you expect that they might see it? Who knows? I would like to think that if anybody... Uh, James or anybody close to him saw Packer and Sons that they would think that it was um, accurate and uh, and ultimately I think sympathetic as well. I'd like to think that they would see that it's been very well researched and that none of it is mean spirited uh, or that it's trying to make any easy attack. Yeah. Um, you've experienced your own agony in recent times I with have. the 
the death of your partner, Dane. Yes. And uh, no doubt you continue to grieve. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to dwell on that experience. Sure. But, but can you recognise any ways in which the event has impacted you as a writer? Yes. Or indeed the manner in which you approach your writing? Yeah, I mean, I think I... Dane and I were together since he was 19 and I was 20. And he died unexpectedly last year, uh, age 37. So I'm still in shock. Hmm. I still... I still don't quite compute that this has happened. I'm really struggling with that. But it has changed the way I approach my work. Um, I have a different relationship with even ne- needing to make a, uh, an income. You know, I, I, I feel that I, um, um, you know, I've inherited this mortgage and... Uh, um, but also work has become a retreat. I'm really grateful, I'm really lucky in that way because I, I was frightened early on that I wouldn't be productive, that I couldn't focus on anything. But I found work a, a way of, um, uh, I guess in grief we do, we do seek control, the things that we can be in charge of, um, given that we can't be in control of the fact that we've lost the person we love and work has been something that I feel I have been able to control or, or it's something that um, helps me in the objective that I've had since since he died which was to get into our house see Dane died a week into the the demolition of our home you can s- you, you I mean just started right this I, look, I'm going back to NIDA and a design presentation for Peter Cook now, and this one wouldn't cut it because it's too obvious as a metaphor. You know, <laughs> Peter Cook would be like straight to the never ever pile because, you know, the, the love of your life dies while the house is being dismantled. I mean, it's too obvious. Uh, so um, that then put the house on, on hold and, um, uh, and it's only this fortnight that I finally got back into that house. And that's been my objective, to, you know, battling with the banks and... And I had this wonderful, had a terrible builder that I had to sack and then a wonderful builder that has helped me through it. And, um, uh, you know, so um, just that, that mission, that's been my one objective. Get in the house, keep the house, don't let the bank take it from you. Um, and uh, that means that work has been kind of different. I don't, it's, it's, it's a, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be like, I don't know, be accepting jobs just because I'm trying to make a buck. It hasn't been like that at all. It's been, um, um, I don't know, I just sort of... Have you spent more time working than you normally would? Perhaps. Perhaps I have. As a way to... uh, And more time in the theatre, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just stop thinking just to be like... It's a weird thing. I mean, I think it's... I know I sort of... You know, it is difficult for me to talk about this, particularly publicly, because it's, it's still so raw. But at the same time, I do think it's important to share stories of bereavement, even when you're with you know so within it like this like because we're all going to experience versions of this and it's it's helpful to to know about it and share stories um uh but there's been this weird effect where at times you know of course i'm so broken but there's these other times when the joys of life have become even more intense it's almost like dane's opportunity to live was just sort of taken in an, in an instant he just didn't wake up one morning and I feel because he's being deprived of it and I have the privilege of life I, I want to appreciate it for him and so there have been times when I've been enjoying things even more 
intensely. And sometimes that's been work. I've found work, the, the joys of work to be um, just uh, really consuming in a way. But, um, yes, it's a very, it's a very strange, very strange experience that I'm going through. Well, you know, there's lots of people that love you and they're... Um, I know that. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. been my rescue. Yeah. Being a part of this this community of the arts, you know, mm. both both from screen work that I do and, and theatre, particularly theatre. You know, uh, Glenn Hazeldean said to me that the, the thing you know about this community is that no matter what happens, you'll have a roof over your head and, and you'll have food on the table when things get bad. And I've really tested that these past 18 months or whatever it is. And... and a lot of the houses I bounce. I've stayed in eight houses over those eighteen months, and and um, a lot of them were were theatre makers' houses. Actually, a lot of you know people that I stayed with, and and also the gay community as well. I stayed in a lot of gay households as well, and that's it's been wonderful to feel a part of a community, and you really feel it when you're in need. Mm. Well, it seems an appropriate segue into this. You've also said this quote: oh, yeah. "Working in the arts affords a deep connection with our colleagues. Our tasks are necessary." necessarily exposing our workshops are personal we share potholes sometimes chasms of uncertainty on the road to conviction where do i say that oh in my research there sounds you go. like some sermon i'm giving or something oh no it's, it's a good sermon <laughs> it's a good sermon um you've given us quite a collection of stories now or receiving having received major productions nationally and around the world we talk about Gwyn in purgatory holding the man strangers in between mark colvin's kidney satin's return What's it like watching one of your plays with a UK or a USA audience? Um, it is a different experience, and uh, some things are, are lost in translation, and some things are gained because of the exotic kind of voice. You know, I noticed that with Strangers in Between in London last year. Um, they were laughing at you know it was a weird experience actually because we had this Australian production. Coincidentally, you know the play was i don't know from what what was a play was written in 2005 so it's you know it's an old play and and then coincidentally there were suddenly these two productions on at once and in the the melbourne sydney production they were definitely laughing at different local things and then in the uk they're laughing at things about the the otherness of the characters as well the sort of um i guess a kind of frankness in shane or a coarseness in shane that they identify as australian i guess um so yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating that stuff. Do you have to change many of the references? No, I try. I try. I try not to. I, I, I definitely ask that we don't. There are sometimes there's like some cultural reference that might be uh, confusing, so you adjust it. But I think we've been doing it the other way around from the states or the UK for so long that it's a good opportunity for us to you know contribute to their vernacular in the way they contribute to ours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you spend much time in the rehearsal room with the, the original productions? I like to. I mean, this one that's coming up at Belvoir, I'll go there for the first week and then wait for the director to invite me back. Um, I know that Eamon Flack is someone that will probably invite me back a lot, but I only want to be there if I'm, I'm useful. And I've also learned it's very important, even just as an expression of trust, to, to walk away and let people just explore, you know? Like, they don't want the writer being protective or defensive or something so sitting up the back sighing a lot yeah yeah that's right you've got to let people have freedom to invent what they want to invent now let's discuss the war i'm talking about the immense cuts to arts funding yes in this country we're in a crisis aren't we yeah it's a really bad time for that stuff it's a real worry that pot of money is 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 is, 
is just been diminished. And we also have to pay attention to what is lost because with this, it's about they're about to announce soon, I guess, the, the what is missed out in the next Australia Council round. And there'll be a lot of jobs that go, but there'll also be things that are on the ground. You know, they will be for they'll be for youth, they'll be for um, communities outside of the cities, and that is a huge cost to those communities. And you think about whatever those companies might be, but if it's a, a youth theatre in, you know, the outback or somewhere that loses money, well, that does actually cost lives mm. because there are there will be there will be kids would have found a self-expression that would have been able to articulate things via their involvement in a theatre company that won't be able to. And who knows where that goes? You know, there's, there are ways, that there are things that will not be measured. And then there's the jobs. There are so many jobs out there in the arts that will be lost next year because of these cuts. And it's a real pity. I think that there's a, an approach to this from governments where they like to they like to build theatres. We're seeing that particularly in Sydney. They love to build theatres. But are they are they providing for the making of the product that's going to fill those theatres? I don't think they are. And I think that's a very strange way of approaching it. They like theatres because, I guess, in an electorate, you can see them from the street. But who cares if it's got nothing on the stage? Mm. Who cares if they, they, you know people can't actually go to those theatres. It's ridiculous. You, you need to fund the making of it. You need to fund those... Uh, you know, it's, it's really telling that, you know, they'll cut things like a quick response grant. You know, that's a tiny little bit of money for for a, um, an artist to take up an opportunity overseas, you know, like $2,000, $3,000 to go and, um, you know, go over to, say, be in part of a production uh, overseas at, at late notice or go and do um, some sort of professional development at late notice. You know, that, that, get, that gets scrapped. But then you'll spend millions of dollars making a theatre and it's just so sort of... Disproportionate. Disproportionate mm-hmm. and petty. Mm-hmm. Just some, they don't fund the practical making of the work at the moment and they're just attacking it, particularly in terms of playwrights. You know, when... We see AustralianPlays.org. AustralianPlays.org, but under, we've lost Playwriting Australia. What is going to replace those that practical resource for making plays? And the, the thing that those organisations help do is that they broaden the people, they find new voices. The problem with uh, playwriting in Australia, as we know, is that it's very, the people getting an opportunity to do it is, is a pretty limited few and we have to make a theatre that adequately reflects the makeup of the country it has to be diverse it has to be multicultural um, and that's what those organisations have an extraordinary track record in doing and uh, it's a real pity that that sort of play development um, has fallen away it, it also helps playwrights that maybe don't have um a relationship with professional companies to help build their plays uh, and and find opportunities for them. Um, so we will see the knock-on effect over the next um, decade, I suspect, of of what's happening now um, with the, the you know, few, fewer fewer plays, fewer new voices. Yeah, it's going to be a real cultural and social loss to us, isn't it? To I think it is, particularly when you see some some theatre companies are also in this environment being forced to be very commercially minded. And so you are seeing a kind of star casting 
uh, in the programming. You're seeing careful programming, uh, and you know those support organisations provide for something more adventurous. Yeah, art's crucial to society, aren't they? But uh, the government doesn't seem to see that. Not at the moment. Government doesn't seem to see a lot of things, really. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Packer and Sons. Yeah, this is the, the work you're working on at the moment. Yep. I love the Packers. They're fascinating. They're absolutely fascinating. I think an amazing dynasty. Yeah. Um, I, I guess you've read Gerald Stone's "Who Killed Channel Yeah, I have. And compulsive yeah. viewing. Yeah. Fascinating stories about. Um, there are, and I think I think that's the thing with the Packers. They're so sizable, and their influence is so um, sizable that you know we should be telling their stories in many ways, in many forms, over and over again. I, I you know, the, recently there's been television miniseries about them, but. I don't think Channel 9 should have the last word on the Packers. No, not at all. Father-son relationships can be very complex, Mm. um, as indeed we see with with Kerry and James, but Mm. also uh, with Clive and Kerry. Yeah. I guess. No, Clive was the brother. Frank. Clive, Frank, 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 yeah, and and Clyde. Yeah. 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 Well, that's right, and that's very much the focus of this play, you know, because because they are such fascinating characters and there are so many... so many interesting facets to them and so many interesting episodes in in the the lives of the Packers, Um, I needed a focus. And that from the start, that was always going to be a focus on fathers and sons. Um, And that became a guide to to what material is included in in the play. And there are lots of scenes that I wrote that were, you know, excluded and a lot of things that I researched that were never going to have their part in the play. But... um, uh, if they didn't contribute to that story of fathers and sons, they didn't make the cut. So is it, uh, what, what sort of time frame does it cross to? Is, uh, is we start in the mid-50s and right. we go through to the early 2000s. Oh, so it's quite epic? Yeah, it's epic, yeah, but always with that focus of fathers and sons. And and right from the start, there's been a theatrical game uh, to, to tell that story, that I, this idea of, uh, of, of inheritance or a transfer from um, sort of like uh, when when one actor uh, gets the crown. Uh, there's a, the, the doubling shifts. I'm probably sort of giving things away, but that's okay. I, I get the, the story is almost Shakespearean, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, it, it is, it is, it's regal. It's of a scale that feels like the story of, of gods or, or kings and princes, yeah. You told me that you think uh, your writing of the play benefited from your queer eye. I'd like to think so. In, what do you mean by that? Well, I think you've always got to, you know, you've got, if you've been blessed with a queer eye, you might as well use it, you know. Yeah. And so um, I feel that in terms of, this play is very much about um, privilege and masculinity and the patriarchy. And I feel that I've been, because I'm a bloke, I think I've been in rooms where I've, you know, seen, seen uh, actions or things um, said that might not have been... Uh, said in other spaces there's something about that all male domain and Mm. and and being queer i felt that i've been um both an insider and an outsider of that and i think masculinity particularly masculinity in australia has always fascinated me because of that from school and and onwards um and i'm just interested in that brutality vulnerabilities uh of masculinity and I, i think right now and this is why i want to you know make this play it's a very good time to be asking questions about um about the, the patriarchy about uh, about privilege and, and um and, and those who have a 
claim to uh, an entitled power. You mentioned the great John Howard. He's playing which character? So he plays Sir Frank and and Kerry. He's sort of like the senior packer. I mean, that's what I mean by this game with the doubling. Yep, yep. Um, so when when you sort of ascend to take the crown, you get to be played by John Howard. <laughs> <laughs> who are the other actors in so it? So Josh McConville plays young Kerry and then... Uh, and then James, who tries to ascend, and uh, John Gaydon plays Rupert Murdoch uh, and various other roles. Um, Brandon McClellan plays Clyde Packer, um, and there's a few others about to be announced. You've proven yourself to be one of our great storytellers. Do you ever stop to think that you've now joined the ranks of Williamson and Nower and Gow and Dorothy Hewitt, Annie Race and... Uh, is, is that... Not- <laughs> because it's a fact. <laughs> that'd be that'd be very nice. No, I don't think think that yet. I'll keep on trying. <laughs> <laughs> You're too modest. You're too modest. What do you find most exciting about the theatre? Well, I guess some of those things I was talking about before that it feels dangerous. I mean, it's sort of exhilarating being there on opening night. I we start rehearsals for Packer and Sons on Monday, and yeah, I guess as opening night approaches in November, is it? Um, I'll start to get the nerves that I always get, and because it's so it's so unpredictable what a, what an audience will actually do with the work. You know, you put all this effort trying to predict and trying to be, and you'll spend previews being responsive to them and reshaping it, but it's um. I don't know, it's just exhilarating being there in the house with the audience while they're uh, experiencing the play. Are you able to sit in there on opening night or do you, are you at the back? Or? Look, this is, this is going to be a different one for me because I've always had, for so long, I've had Dane by my side. Right, yeah. This is going to be a different one, you know, and Dane really knew how to look after me on opening night. But I'll, I'll be with his sisters uh, and my mum. Uh, and so his sisters will stand in for Dane. But he was, I, I used to be really jittery and he would just sort of put a hand on, on my leg and calm me. Um, so uh, I don't know. I've, I'm, I think I'll be right. <laughs> we'll see. It'll, yeah. Yeah, but that's what I love about it, that it is, it's nerve wracking, you know. Is there a ritual that you go through? Yeah, on, on opening night, I, I write cards to the, the cast and the team just because I can't focus on anything else. And so, um, yeah, just sort of, saying thanks to the team is my, is my sort of um, way of just focusing my mind before we go to opening night. Mm. Do you read reviews? Um, I've learnt to at least try to read them late, but this is the other deficit I have. Dane read my reviews, right. and he would then select which ones were helpful for me to read. Uh, he was very good at judging that. Uh, it wasn't always just the good ones, but the ones that he thought mattered and were important to read so i have to appoint a new person to do that for me that's that horrible thing of grieving isn't it going through those period of firsts yeah 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 and this will be that, the first first new play without him yeah, yeah yeah i mean i've been to see my play like i went you know chicago and i've seen some other things that i've written since he died but um and i've always just had a wingman i got my little brother to come along to that and um yeah so i just gotta use the the good loving people around me Mm. What makes you happy? Uh, good reviews. No. Um, <laughs> um, uh, what makes me happy? Um, I that, mean, work. Work makes me happy. Yeah. 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 
On reviews, though, see, that's another sort of uh, detriment to the arts at the moment. I mean, there's some great reviewers, but they uh. had to go online. Mm. We don't have access to newspapers anymore, or, or what we do is yeah. greatly edited or Yeah, or but then some of the ways that, like, you look at, like, uh, Audrey, for example, there are ways that the, the, the online reviews have become... And I, I don't actually know how that is funded, actually, but that's, that's, I think that's a, um, a fantastic solution there. I think the other thing at the moment, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to critique the critics, but um, uh, there is a kind of um, I, I I don't want to say too much, except that I think there are some fantastic reviewers. But I um, and I have I have read reviews where I, I read them and I think, oh yeah, you're right, you know. And I've then then done another pass on the play um, because they're you know really insightful and they get it. Um, but there are sometimes I think at the moment I'm reading re- reviews where. The intention of the work is being critiqued, not the not actually what the work is doing. Sort of critiquing the way that it's packaged, uh, particularly in terms of its politics, what it's what it's announcing about its intent, rather than what that work is actually doing, and um, and that concerns me a little bit. Mm. Packer and Sons, November December at uh, Belvoir Street, and people can get tickets online. Right. Tommy, thank you. You have been on my wish list from day one. Oh, I've been looking forward stages, to it. So I'm glad that we've um, managed to catch oh, up. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm an avid listener, so yeah, thank you. I know, and I appreciate that very much. So um, good luck with the show, and uh, see you soon. Thanks so much, Peter. Packer and Sons promises to be another riveting work from the pen of Tommy Murphy. Probably a good idea to book your tickets now. More information on the Belvoir Street website. Now, I know I go on about it, but have you rated and reviewed the Stages podcast yet? Don't tell me it slipped your mind. It's easy. Just go to the podcast directory in iTunes, probably where you've accessed this episode. Scroll to the bottom and you'll see a section titled Ratings and Reviews. Tap to rate via the stars. Hopefully you'll you'll hit five. And then follow up with a few choice words or phrases by tapping on the section Write a Review. Your support here will help to give the podcast broader exposure and lift us in the ratings. As always, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages. Stages.